Trails of troubles, rows of battles, paths of victory, we shall walk. The road is dusty, the road is a mighty rough, better road is a waiting, the day is not far off. Welcome back to She Walks with Sharon Bowers and Carly Blaylock, and you're tuning in to WEHC 90.7, and I hope you've been listening, but Carly and I have decided that we've been having a grand time. (laughs) We've been talking about things that we think matter, and we hope that you think it matters too, and so today we're really excited uh, to talk a little bit about ableism, and Carly's going to give you some definitions, and we're going to talk a little bit about it specifically from the perspective of women and the violence, you know, that women experience as a result of it. So, Carly, welcome to the show. We're glad you're here. It's a great duo, you and I. (laughs) (laughs) I agree. Yeah, I think, you know, we we briefly touched on ableism over the past few weeks, but we wanted to dedicate a whole episode to it to really kind of explore ableism as a concept. So I'm going to give a definition. It's a little long, but it's really good, and it helps us to kind of frame the discussion that we're going to have today. So this is um, from Ableism, a Form of Violence Against Women. Ableism and ableist views are ways in which ideas and beliefs are organized and supported that is based on the belief that a quote-unquote able body is favored or preferred over a disabled body. Similar to the experience of racism, homophobia, transphobia, and sexism, it is a societally constructed characteristics of of a disability that positions people with disabilities as quote-unquote inferior um, group to non-disabled people. So society includes disabled people who have abilities that differ from the majority. Ableism adheres to the medical model whereby people and women are defined by their disability and where the focus is on the individual's deviation from the norm rather than recognizing everyone's individuality and specific sets of experiences. So an example of this would be autism is defined as a devaluation of people who um, are deaf, deafened, or hard of hearing. An example of this would be assuming that sign language is an inferior language and or, or the cultural ways that deaf people are somehow inferior. So again, you know, we see ableism in the fact that most people can't sign um, and that don't are not fluent in sign language. And that limits the deaf population from being able to communicate in a vast array of areas. So that would be an example of ableism. When you said that, this is a little off subject, but when you said that, I thought about it. I lived in South Florida for a while, and our Haitian brothers and sisters were held in such, you know, like a low position in the minds of a lot of people. And they always were saying, well, you know, they come, they're impoverished, they come to this country, blah, 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 blah. And finally, I just got this campaign going to say, how many languages do you speak? because most of our Haitian brothers and sisters speak at least three and probably five. And you're saying that they're impoverished or they're, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so we have a tendency to do what we can't do that someone else does to devalue it or diminish it. And so I thought about that when you thought, when you were talking about, you know, sign language, we diminish that and see it as a problem and don't see it as, as, uh, as something that can move people forward, but see it as something that can keep people, hinder people. And yet we are the ones who don't know it. <laughs> right, exactly. And I think this article does an excellent job because it says 
it says that we minimize or ignore the impairment because most of the time with the right supports in place, all people can be included in their community, which there's this great way of thinking about disability as you're disabled in a space, right? Because if the space is able to accommodate all kinds of people, you won't be disabled in that space. Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. an interesting kind of framework. And again, I am by no means an expert, <laughs> um, right. but that is something that has been kind of put forward as a framework. If you're in a room full of people who can sign and you're a deaf person, then you're not experiencing that in that moment because you're able to communicate with everybody. But when you walk into a building and no one there can sign, you know, that limits your ability to engage with that space. So yeah, I, I think that that's, that's critical. That's the same way. I know we're going to talk about women and ableism, but that's the same way, like, you know, what was used for so long to say what women couldn't or what blacks and other people of color couldn't do. It's the same construct. You know, if you, if all of your equipment that you put out fires with is built for men six feet and over, then you're automatically excluding a lot of women. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if it's all built on upper arm strength, I mean, there are all these, these constructs. And then we say that the people who can't perform or produce are at that level, that it's them instead of the system, if you will, or the concept that has been created around it. So, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And it makes me think about, there was an article written, um, the world was not built for women. And it talks about, uh, it gives a lot of different examples, but one of the examples that stuck with me was more women die in car accidents than men. Why is that? Because crash test dummies are all built like men. Yeah. They're built with the male proportions, male body weight, all of that, like, you know, stereotypically, right? So again, it's just those kinds of things happening over and over and over again, that the system is just not built to, uh, you know, women are seen as other, right? Man is seen as this is the normative, normative, right? This is the norm. Everything else is different. And that includes women. So and, and if we were if we were really going there, we're not. But we would take that one step further. And we would say white men. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> but we're not going there. This show's not about that. So forgive me. But I couldn't let that in my mind. I couldn't let that slide because yeah. no, you're exactly right. Yeah, absolutely. And anything that deviates from and of course we could add in cis straight. We could add all that in if we wanted to. We could just keep going, couldn't we? <laughs> and anything that deviates from that is seen as not the norm. And so we see, um, you know, we see this, these attitudes towards women, of course. And when we talk about ableism, we are talking about, you know, people who experience chronic lifelong disabilities or uh, illnesses. But we, we also talk about sort of temporary things as well. You might have a temporary injury or a temporary illness that has caused you to have some sort of disability, right? And we also think about this in the sense of the things that impact women, you know, as we know, women, you know, most women get periods and have a, like a hormonal cycle that they go through every month. Um, certainly not all women, but most women do. And that is not really recognized, especially in a workplace, right? Most men go about their day, not really thinking about the fact that their coworker may be feeling like yeah, absolute crap right now <laughs> because they're dealing with this intense, uh, traumatic thing happening within them, Right. And we, we see the joke float around online too, that, you know, if men got periods, they just wouldn't work that week. And that's probably true. (laughs) (laughs) And, 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 you know, in some environments, it can really be harmful. Yeah. You know, I mean, something that's a natural course of human events 
especially for women, but can turn into something harmful. Like if you had to take a day off because you were sick and some people have these really symptomatic periods and you know, it really, for them, it really is challenging. But if you look at that and this happens once a month and you're on this cycle and it happens, then what it looks like to your employer is one day a month, you don't come to work. So it looks like absenteeism and all of those other kinds of things. And, you know, but if you have, if you had, if you had supervisors, quote unquote, who knew about this, whose consciousness had been raised to where they were aware of what was going on, you could get through it easier, but that's not the case. Right. And, you know, there's a, um, a device that's a period cramp simulator. And there's all the, again, all these viral videos of men trying the period cramp simulator and realizing, oh, this is actually really bad. (laughs) Um, And, you know, again, like you said, everyone's experience of that is different. So some women have light periods, some women have very heavy ones, some women have very painful ones, um, some women have less painful ones, right? So again, it's a varied experience. But regardless, you know, the fact that you have to deal with that at all and still go about your day and do all of the things that you have to do is a problem. And it's a problem that it's not recognized. And so, you know, a woman may be trying to power through her day and maybe she misses an important meeting or she makes a mistake at work, right? And immediately that is seen as, well, she just doesn't know what she's doing or, you know, her work is suddenly devalued because of of this mistake that was made when she has all of this other stuff going on that is not acknowledged or recognized, right? And, you know, that's just the way that kind of, again, people just don't look, look over that. Yeah, I think about like, and, and I was thinking about pregnancy, but I was I was thinking about periods, but I was also thinking about pregnancy. All these things that, you know, women hold the energy for or women experience, whichever the case might be. Uh, you can think about men who, you know, they have this, want to give them the cigars because they're having a baby, but they're not having the baby. <laughs> they're literally not having the baby. So they get to celebrate with all the cigars and all those kinds of things. And women for a season of their life are differently abled. So this mm-hmm. whole ableism piece, this temporary one that you were talking about earlier, it comes into play. And uh, and, and then it'll come into play in the workplace. And, right. and we talk about it from the perspective of even afterwards, like, you know, nurses, nursing stations, you know, in our, in our workplaces, so that if you decide to nurse your child, that you can go and do it with dignity, you yeah. know, or without penalty or without it being punitive. But many of our workspaces do not accommodate that kind of, uh, of, of uh, support for pregnant women or women who've had babies. Exactly. You're exactly right. And I think it also brings up an important conversation around um, what we would call like invisible disabilities or invisible illnesses, things like that, that get overlooked quite often. And again, we need to stop making assumptions about productivity, right? Mm -hmm. Because people's productivity may look different, but that doesn't mean that it's any less valuable. And we need to start thinking about production and productivity in very different ways, right? Because there are people who, you know, just cannot do something the way that another person would do that specific thing, right? And so, you know, thinking about that, and it's really easy to ignore that or not think about that when you don't have an invisible illness or a chronic illness or are not a woman and don't menstruate. So, like, it's really easy to do that when you don't have to think about those things. Um, It's really easy to ignore that that is a reality that people live with. 
And when you are differently abled, whether it's permanent, quote unquote, or temporary, quote unquote, it comes with all sets of preconceived notions and ideas about you and about your ability. And so, you know, people limit you to what you can do or what they think you can do, or even what they think you should be doing. And, you know, for women, you layer, layer that on, you know, what women can do in this society and what women can't, what is a woman's place and, and those kinds of things. I mean, there's just so many assumptions. I remember talking to one of my colleagues who has a disabled daughter and we were talking about, she was saying she wants the very best for her daughter. You know, she wants all the things, good friendships, good relationships, you know, all of those things for her daughter. And her daughter is permanently, quote unquote, differently abled. And, um, you know, we were talking and, and, and I think people forget that this is a sensual person who wants to experience a life-giving, life-need-meeting relationship. And, but the fear for the parent was that someone would take advantage of her daughter. Yeah. And these are real because I, I read some statistics somewhere that was talking about, you know, uh, how people see differently abled people and, and how they end up experiencing so much violence, especially, you know, uh, women, because people don't see them as uh, being part of a sexual relationship, you know, and so often what happens for them is that they're raped, mm -hmm. you know, instead of, you know, genuinely loved and cared for and get to experience it from an empowering perspective. So I, I know that's a little off, but I think all of this is what women who are differently abled experience that we don't think of, you know, we, we don't even imagine that that's, and then we just discount them like, oh, since you're disabled, you must be a non-sexual being. No, right. <laughs> right. my it's, legs don't work. Other things do. <laughs> you right. know, <laughs> exactly. And on top of that too, you have like the infantilization that happens. And this happens with neurodivergent people as well. People who might find themselves um, neurodivergent or on the autism spectrum tend to be infantilized. And the way that they walk in the world is not the way that neurotypical people walk in the world. And interact with the world and then mm -hmm. their way of interacting and way of being a way of presenting is seen as less than or you know oh I just I don't really see that person as being like a whole complete person right and that's really difficult uh, for people to navigate and especially like in workplace situations but also in personal relationships it's very difficult to have those conversations and again you know you may not know that the person that you're talking to is autistic because of the way that they present, right? You may not know that you're talking to a neurotyp or neurodivergent person. And so because of that, you may make assumptions about that person. You may treat that person differently. You may think that person's just, you know, not a kind person or, or you know, mm -hmm. whatever assumptions you're making about this person. And you don't understand that, that there's something else going on there, right? And right. so, you know, but the world is not built for, it's built for neurotypical able-bodied people, right? That's just the way that the world is built. Yeah, that's that whole, I guess we could look at it from the perspective of the, the binary versus the non-binary. You know, there is that whole binary, either you're able or you're not able. You know, I mean, there's nowhere in between. And you're talking about all of the things in between, especially the things that are on the quote unquote spectrum. Right. But we look at it, you're either able or you're not. Right, exactly. And the only reason that you're not able or you're neurodivergent is because that is the way the system is, right? right. You, we wouldn't even talk about it if the system wasn't built that way. Right. Um, 
but that's the way the system is built. And you're exactly right. It ties right back into that whole binary piece of that whole piece of the system is built to operate this way. And if you don't fit in that system, then you're seen as other, right? And that is the crux of everything that we talk about on this show. I know. there. I've, I saw some statistics on one of the articles and it said over half a billion women and girls in the world have disability. And, and more than one out of six women, this was in Canada, lives with a disability that was 15 years and older. And over 75% of the incidents of sexual assault of women with mental disabilities involve reoccurring episodes. I mean, real stuff, y'all, is happening. In this case, it was talking, it was in, in uh, Toronto, but it said that 42% of the homeless women uh, in Toronto have a history of traumatic brain injury. So there's a lot of stuff that goes on that makes this challenge for women who are this ableism and women it, it's affected women very differently so this yeah. violence that we started out that we were going to talk about how this violence against women how ableism uh you know affords extra violence against or violent opportunities against women yes absolutely and it's that whole power piece right and we yeah. talk about the system that enables violence to happen against women and added on top of that, that intersectional piece is the violence happening towards uh, disabled women and disabled women of color, right? So, you know, we know because of what's happening with our um, transgender sisters, you know, the further you're marginalized, the more violence happens to you. And, and the less is done about it. And the less is done about <laughs> it. And the system does not um, support you, right? Or support your needs. So, you know, again, it's it's all of these pieces kind of interlocking together. Yeah, I saw that there, there was a myth that said that women with disabilities are seen as sexually undesirable or asexual and can't be sexually violated. And the reality from this study was that over 80% of women with disabilities will be sexually abused in their lifetime. Sexual violence is about power and control and not sexual attractiveness and desirability of the victim. Yeah. So it's kind of like what we were talking about earlier. I mean, doesn't that blow you away that this, to be differently abled, could translate in a high percentage for abuse? Yes, I know. <laughs> it's, well, and it's like we see, you know, a, a ton of abuse of the elderly, right? So again, mm -hmm. it's that whole piece of like a lot, you know, the elderly are seen as they are infantilized, they are seen as um, vulnerable, and so they are abused quite a bit. And again, we see that with our, you know, with the differently abled population, the neurodivergent population, we see them, that correlation between being infantilized, seen as not fully human, living a full human experience, and being abused, right? Yeah, yeah. So what, what, what do we do? Because when you were talking earlier, and before we started our show, we were talking just about all of the kinds of things that women, you know, uh, experience from this, from the perspective of ableism. And we were talking about some of the temporary things, but, you know, some of that is just plain old attitude toward women. Yeah. You know, already as a woman, there is a form of dis quote unquote ability that is connected to you as a woman, what you cannot do, it's already yeah. prescribed through the socialization process and the beliefs that people have about you as a woman and that whole inferiority perspective. And again, from an intersectional perspective, the, the more you are marginalized, the more you are part of the disenfranchised, the more 
these things are thought about you, the more disposable you are. And and it got me to thinking while you were thinking, and this is not the show, but I started thinking about, you know, during the period of enslavement and black women, you know, what they were seen as, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, and how disposable were they? You know, at a moment's notice, you could be a concubine. At a moment's notice, you could be put in the field. At a moment's notice, your children could be taken from you. At a moment's notice, you know, all of this could happen because you are not considered part of the social system. And I think for differently able people, sometimes it's the same way. They are not seen as full contributors to society because they may need some help. (laughs) <laughs> well, and this, yeah, and this ties back to our conversation about productivity, right? We live in a culture that values productivity and what you produce over everything else. And if you need assistance in order to produce, or if you cannot produce in the way that is seen as that is valued by society, right, then you're not seen as valuable. I mean, and again, looking at how we treat our elderly, uh, again, that's exactly what that is. Why do um, why do we treat them? as less than it's because they're not the productive members of society quote unquote right i mean like and we don't see their wisdom their historical knowledge their guidance their um the emotional labor they do we don't we don't value that because that's not production the way that we want production to happen so again it's all tied together and and you're exactly right you know women do face this um, in, in addition because we are seen as other um, we are additional to men and our needs are different right our needs are different than men and a, there's a, a great article that talks about women who are neurotypical uh, or neurodivergent uh, have ADHD or autism they are diagnosed much much later in life and that is partly because the way that those those things present in women is a little different mm-hmm. but women are also excellent maskers. We can mask a lot of symptoms. And so we go undiagnosed for a very long time. And Mm -hmm. so think about all those formative experiences that you've had and you kept thinking, why am I not getting this? Why is this so difficult for me? And you may have made choices that didn't benefit you because you just didn't understand what was happening. And then there you are diagnosed later in life. And it's like, okay, now everything makes sense. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, that that stuff is, that's a very real experience that many, many women have. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I was thinking back to that whole, you know, women and pregnancy, uh, all the stereotypes that go with, you know, if you have a period, all the jokes that are made, you know, like in the office, if you... If you reply back to somebody, oh, what's wrong with you? You must be on your period. Or that used to be really rude and say, oh, you must be on the rag. You know, I mean, that was the real, that was the the horrible way of saying it. But they said all those kind of things whenever you expressed yourself. Because, again, you were expected to mask and not participate and say yes and all of those kinds of things. And then, you know, you think back to even in the workplace, you know, working pregnant. One of the worst things to be is to be pregnant and to be clergy. I you, can imagine. You, you can imagine. You can imagine to be pregnant and to be clergy. You know, you're doing this male, really male thing with this male God. You know, I mean, all these preconceived notions and ideas. And then you walk to the to the podium or to the dais, and you've got this enlarged stomach. And it's one person said uh, to somebody, one of my colleagues said, "Oh, I know what you've been doing." I, y- you know, I mean, just. <laughs> I know, Carly, that's hard to imagine, but I mean, those are the kinds of things that, you know, get said, get said to women. And this is a temporary, you know, kind of um, disability. 
and it shouldn't it shouldn't be seen as a disability like we were talking earlier about the binary and the non-binary it should not be seen that way but it is seen that way and it's going right. to continue to be seen that way and all of these issues that that affect women in the workplace they they add to the ones you can see and the ones you can't see because sometimes you never get hired because you are a woman and they think you might be pregnant or you might have children that you have to take care of so some of it is seen and some of it is not seen yeah and you know i i really like that we're hitting on this idea of like the way that the system is built because there's a really interesting thought exercise um and i know we're coming sort of to the end of our time here but um <laughs> It basically, imagine that you wake up tomorrow and everybody else in the world can fly but you. If you give it some time, the world is going to suddenly be built for flying people, right? There's going to be buildings that are, you know, really tall. There won't be elevators or stairs because no one needs them. Most people don't need them, right? You have to drive to work, but everybody else can just fly to work. You know, those sorts of things, right? You have to spend money on gas to fill up your car to get to work. Other people don't have to do that. And so you start, it's meant to like explore how you would walk in the world as a person who cannot fly when everyone else can, right? Mm -hmm. and, it, and the idea is one, to create empathy, but also to see that the world would suddenly be built for the people who can do that and not for you. But if the world remained the same and was built for people who could fly or couldn't fly, you wouldn't experience quite the same amount of things that you would experience otherwise, right? It's it's a systemic thing because right. the, the system is not built that way. The world is not built that way. Buildings are not built to be accessible because most people don't need it to be that way, right? And it's trying to get people out of the mindset of just because quote unquote, most people can do X, Y, or Z doesn't mean that that's the mindset we should be operating in. Well, I mean, and you think about it, I mean, we had to have a disabilities act to get people to, to start to make some accommodations for people with disabilities. And yeah. that took, you know, and as we say tongue in cheek, an act of Congress, but it really did take, you know, uh, an act, a law to be enacted that says that you have to do that. And then we're slow to do that because we say we don't have any of them, you know, the, the standard, we don't have any of those no. or any of them. And so we don't do all the things that, that we could do. But Carly, what do you think are some things that we could do for women with disabilities to kind of try to bring this in and make it a little a little better? What are some things? So I think there's, I mean, big question, obviously, but I think one is we need to have more conversations about it, more awareness, and talk about the ways in which people are disabled that is not readily seen, because that is a reality. We need to start assessing our own workplaces and our own um, our own towns where we live. How accessible is this? How accessible are we? And holding ourselves accountable to make sure that we are being as accessible as possible, as inclusive as possible. And you know, I think it's really important as well that we do not infantilize. That we make sure that we are providing access to all support that is needed, and we are letting people tell us what they need. Um, and the support that they need and that we we see everyone as a full human being with the full potential for everything that a human being can be and that it is not that we're not infantilizing people because that is extremely dangerous and extremely damaging i think that that is kind of the whole the whole summary and that all fits into an awareness you know mm -hmm. an awareness level increased awareness increased consciousness level all those kinds of things because i still live 
in somewhat fear. We have a group coming in in, in 23. It's HIV is not a crime. And so there's people living with HIV AIDS and they're coming in. And I'm already thinking, do we have the right accommodations? Yeah. You know, and, and sometimes we get away with that because we have a historic campus. And but I mean, you know, I was at Princeton the other week and I was amazed. And of course, they've been around since 1636. Mm -hmm. But I was amazed at all of the accommodations to their historic campus that they've made so that people could be included. Differently able people could be included, like to get to the cafeteria. The building remained intact, but over here on the side was a, a way to get in. You know, I mean, just, just, we have to do those kinds of things. And it may not look like we want it to look, but we must do that so that access, you know, that there's access for everybody everywhere. Yeah, and we can't hide behind that historic piece. We just no. And, well, I mean, obviously Princeton University did not. Yeah, because they've been around since 1636. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So they had to make the accommodations. Yeah. Well, I, I hope that we talked a little bit about this ableism and the violence against against women, and we can really learn from women and their epistemology, women and their lived experience, differently able people and their lived experience. We just have to open our eyes and our ears and be willing to hear. Yes, absolutely. And see. <laughs> yes, and see. Because um, remember that quote, Carly, real quick, says, once you've seen something, you can't unsee it. Absolutely. And so we need to hold ourselves accountable <laughs> and do the work that we can do as well. We're no by no means experts. Hopefully we did this some justice today. Um, we will have some experts on to talk about this as well in the future because this is so important. And as we are not experts in it, uh, we want to make sure we provide that space for the people who are very learned about this to come and talk. So we're really uh, grateful that you all joined us today. It was a little bit of a heavy day, but hopefully you learned some things and got some stuff out of it. So thank you all for being with us and we will see you next week. All right. Bye, everybody. Pass over victory. We shall walk.